This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I started this because I wanted to say sorry. And I thought saying sorry, you can't really. But if you help change others going down that route, that people might accept that in some way as a kind of sorry. We've got a really special guest today in the form of Lennox Rogers. I read an article about him the other day somewhere online where he was giving tips about how to avoid being burgled because he was a burglar. And I thought, I don't know many burglars, so I'm going to start looking into him a bit more. And looking him up, I was really intrigued because Lennox has such a warm smile. And I hope you'll forgive me saying he's a sweetie, a mild-mannered, polite, nice and charming man. And you would never imagine, I mean, the list of offences he's committed uh, is outrageous and quite unimaginable that this man has done some of those things. Stabbing left, right and centre, 22 armed robberies since in prison, of course, uh, I think 12, 15 years it was in total, somewhere around that. Almost becoming a pimp, being an enforcer for drug gangs to get their clients to pay up for drug things, uh, nearly killing someone. He'll talk about that today. So where did it all go wrong? It was such a nice, sweet man. We start with Lennox's childhood where you won't believe the way he was treated by kids and teachers at school in what was a divided and broken and racist Britain of the 1960s and 70s. We do a lot of uh, episodes in this podcast about sort of the problems or you know of the woke ideology and stuff like that, but I would never suggest that racism doesn't exist and back then it was really apparently quite rife. Uh, And it's so hard to hear such a sweet-sounding, nice individual and imagining him as a child too. And there was just no respite at home and there was abuse from all the family. It's a real shit show. On top of all that, there is the tragic news as well that his son murdered someone and is now in prison. So, And that sort of brought up, you know, so much guilt and, and, and sadness for Lennox. It's it's a really, really difficult situation. You'll hear all about that and it's a story full of sadness and shame and regret, but it's also a story of resilience and turning a life around because Lennox co-founded, along with his wife Bally, the Refocus Project where he mentors young kids who have fallen through the very gaps that are so familiar to him. His team, which includes ex-offenders, help to keep kids on the straight and narrow, and it's a truly wonderful and very necessary purpose. He has also written a book about his life called Breaking Better, where he goes into everything he discusses today in more detail and more as well, different things. So do get that. Support Lennox and his Refocus project. Just go to breakingbetter.co.uk or click the link to the book in the show notes. Big episodes coming up soon with Andrew Drury, a journalist who'll be talking about Shamima or Shamima Begum, the person who joined ISIS as a teenager from England and isn't being allowed back in the UK. And then Dr. Shaham Das, a friend of the show, he's off and on, and he'll be talking about the Chris Watts family murders. That was the guy who, uh, the other year, killed his wife and kids because he met someone new. And he didn't seem to be psychopathic at all, and then suddenly this happened. 
So that's going on and many more big episodes coming up. But now you're on the edge of crime, racial abuse and the thin blue line with Lennox Rogers. Lennox Rogers, how are you doing? Thanks for joining me on the edge. How's it, how's it going? Uh, it's good. Uh, very busy time, but yeah, everything's good. Thanks for having me on. Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks for making the time. So tell me, tell me a little bit about what well, I guess your background. I, 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 without going into too much, because we'll get into it all as we go along. But do you want to tell me what, what it is you do and your background and that? My background is gangs and institutions, basically prisons. Um, all the care system um, and uh, yeah lots of prisons you're, you're now reformed of course but you committed 22 armed robberies because you had a difficult upbringing didn't you and that that you know you no one's born getting into crime right that's right yeah um, yeah so my upbringing um, I was born in Oxford um, taken to the Caribbean until I was three years old came back to Oxford and um, it was a racist time. There wasn't many black people around. Um, and I grew up um, with gangs. Um, in my area, there was a lot of gangs. They didn't call them like the postcode gangs you have today. They were called boot boys. So that you had mods, um, you had teddy boys, you had skinheads. Um, and they all were, every estate had a gang. Um, and, um, they used to fight each other and they were racist towards the, um, ethnic minority at the time. And so, and so then were there, were the gangs you were sort of in and around, were they from ethnic minorities as well? No, they were all white. Um, I had to avoid them as a child. Um, I, was suffering domestic violence from my parents because they were very strict and um, the friends I had in the community from white backgrounds, they had a bit more freedom and their culture was different. And I started to learn their culture through mixing with the kids and tried to bring it into my own family setting which went against my parents. And so I suffered a lot of physical violence. But during that time as well, um, I was uh, sexually abused and raped eventually by a relative. Um, and that just added to the mix of racism and domestic violence. Uh, so I was getting racially abused in the community and then when I went to school as a child I was getting racially abused there so it was blacks against whites it was um, some white kid would stand in the middle of the playground and shout blacks against whites this would happen at half past eight in the morning um, teachers would line the windows of classrooms placing bets and the majority of of the school kids would be at one end of the playground and there was just seven or eight of us from ethnic backgrounds. Um, the only children that came on our side were like 
um, Scottish and Irish um, that used to sometimes join us. Um, and um, so we all were having a tear up in the playground every day and um, the teachers were placing bets um, and we used to get hiding. I was so naive, you know, um, I was called a lot of names. I, I didn't know um, what they meant, even to the point where they'd tell me um, that, uh, that they'd say things like, um, nigger matter, wogger mind, you'll be all white in the morning. And I was so naive that I thought I actually would be white in the morning. So you'd wake up, I'd wake up in the morning and I'd, th I'd think, well, I'm still the same. What's happened? So it was only that my friends told me, look, Lennox, they're, they're taking the mickey out of you. I didn't realize, um, cause I didn't know what it meant. Um, but, um, I just believed anything they said. Lennox, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. So, um, and they'd, they'd wait for you outside school. So, you know, outside school, there would be these gang of kids waiting to beat you up. Um, and, um, my, uh, I made friends with a mixed race um, guy and his mother was white English, his dad was Jamaican and she used to chase the gangs away, um, you, you know. But I used to, because I had so much abuse in my family, I would go and call for him at six o'clock in the morning, way too early. She would take me in, feed me, make sure I'm clean um, and, um, you know, after school, she would chase the gangs away sometimes, not all the time, because, um, she was a mum, you know, with other duties and responsibilities. But, um, we used to have to, um, uh, plan a route. If you wanted to go to the shop or to the park, um, you used to have to plan a route to try and avoid the gangs. But then whilst you're out trying to play, um, they would come along and if they catch you, they'd beat you up. Growing up around, so you've got gangs in the neighbourhood who are, you know, mostly white kids looking for ethnic minorities. Well, not pre predominantly looking for us, but like um, if they see us, that they would attack us. Bloody hell. And then at school, that's going on. The teachers are betting. What must you, I mean, how did you feel growing up in that environment? And what did you think of white people at the time? Well, initially, um, I was so angry and hurt and I hated what was happening to me. The only thing that saved me from growing up with a chip on my shoulder and hating every white person was I had good neighbours. I had um, English neighbours, and people think I'm going to tell a joke when I say this, I had English neighbours, Scottish neighbours and Irish neighbours. And they... <laughs> They used to take me into their houses and they used to tell me that Lennox, um, not every white person in England is racist. You know, we know what's happening with you, but we're not all like that. That's what I remember. That's what stuck into my head. And so they used to try and encourage me and help me um, and tell me that, not everyone in England is like that. And when you're going through things like that, you're in this bowl and that's all you see. 
And here's these lovely neighbours who are saying, no, that's not the case. We're not all like that. We don't all believe some of what these people think and, and say to you. And, and, and that really helped, you, you know. So I just treated people as best I could as I found them. And so I was defensive towards the racist, but I didn't treat another white person who wasn't racist to me badly because my neighbours told me that not everyone's like that. That's a very admirable trait in you, Lennox. I think a lot of people, you know, wouldn't have responded that way. Yeah, well, that's probably down to the encouragement I had from my neighbours, um, you know. And then um, uh, a different point in my childhood, I had um, crashed a car. I'd, I'd, I'd been given a, a new bike for my birthday and um, doing a bit of antisocial behaviour. I was with some friends and I stupidly parked the bike in front of the car. Um, it was a Morris Minor 1000 van and the keys were in it. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I got in it and stuck my foot on the accelerator over my new bike it went and crashed into a wall. <laughs> and um, it belonged to um, an old couple um, and they lived in these bungalow flats and they 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 came out and they weren't even angry with me they that you know which really reinforced what my neighbors had said these these this elderly couple they took me in made me a cup of tea and give me some biscuits and were trying to calm me down cuz i was scared i run over my new bike and my parents was going to kill me i mean they you know, I got beaten every day with the belt. Um, you know, this was going to uh, ruin my life. Um, and they were very nice, you know, and um, they had to get the police involved and things, but they were so nice. And, um, you know, I, I wanted the police to take me away, but they took me back to my parents. And when my mum saw the state of my bike all mangled up, she was furious and again I, I suffered a severe beating with the belt and the buckle of the belt um, you know but the police couldn't interfere with domestic violence back then it was um, something that um, changed in the law in many years later so yeah but so I didn't grow up with a chip on my shoulder because the and, and these elderly people I went to see them again I went to see them and their friends and they used to tell me their war stories so that's what helped me as well was that these people they shared with me how they survived the war how their parents survived and it made me think wow if they could survive all that which was worse than what I was going through then maybe I could survive what I was going through I guess I guess the thing is the difficult part then was like it sounds like that could have helped but then you go back home and as you say there's abuse there as well so you're getting it on all sides I was getting it on all sides yeah 
Yeah, it was a different, I mean, it was a different time, wasn't it? And I guess it was more sort of accepted for parents to be physically abusive with their children. Did they think they were, do you think they thought they were helping to sort of discipline you or, does, or were they just sort of getting their own anger out on you? There is a saying in the Caribbean, and I think it's said in some other cultures, um, and it's said to children that if you don't hear, you will feel. And that's said, that if you don't do what you're told or what you're asked to do, um, you, you will when we smack you, you know, and um, smacked I was. I was beaten with the belt, sometimes with a slipper, sometimes with a coat hanger, sometimes with a stick. Um, when my parents went to work, um, my sisters, I've got seven sisters that are all older than me, um, they used to beat me as well. Um, and they used to make me... Because like my father thought that because there's seven girls, they need to do the housework and look after me. But when my parents went to work, they thought, no, we're not doing that. And they taught me how to make my own breakfast, how to wash clothes by hand, how to sew, how to iron. Um, so I had to learn all that, you, you know, um, and, and fend for myself. Normally in our culture, it, it's expected that boy or girl, you will learn all these things at some point because before you leave home, you're expected to learn those things before you leave home. And um, I suppose for the English culture many years ago, um, boys and girls were brought up learning how to do things for themselves in case you get sick. You could look at uh, somewhat, some you know, you could look after your wife, or your wife could look after you. Um, you, you know, the man needed to know how to do certain things, and and so uh, um, that that's what happened to me. But it, it was really difficult. Um, I was scared to go to school, um, scared to go out into the playground. Um, I, I lived in <laughs> in that kind of fear, but I, it was forced on me to have to fight and. And fight, I, I did, um, you, you know, but unfortunately, um, I didn't stop there. No, we'll get on to that in a second as well. But I'm just wondering now, I mean, did, did you event, did you eventually confront your parents Did you ever, or, or your sisters and go like, what was that about? You whacking me all the time. I confronted my parents at different times in my life. Um, the last time I confronted my mother was 1996. And <clears throat> I went to visit her in the Caribbean and she didn't want to talk about it. She told me I should forget these things. Um, I had to learn from other family members that, you know, my mother and father had a strict upbringing their self and didn't know how to... Um, be other than the way they were brought up um and I, I had to try and be the adult in some way by um trying to look at how things were for them why i was treated a particular way but um they thought i was really naughty i was really bad and they wanted to smack the living daylights out of me to thinking that it was going to make me good but it created more rage i had rage of course of course and then there was a, f a family member who was sexually abusing you as well 
I mean, that presumably, I don't know what, I'm very fortunate that I don't know what that's like. I've spoken to a lot of people who do. And I gather that, I mean, that sort of changes you for life when someone, when that happens to you, does it? Well, yeah, it did. I, um, my mum used to bake bread and cakes and things. And she used to send me to my godfather's house um, every Saturday and to give his family some bread. And it's something that was done in our culture. Um, you know, you, you shared your food with everyone in the community and they shared theirs with you. Um, but I would sit on the sofa in his house and when we were alone, he would slide up next to me and start trying to feel my crutch. Um, and, it, and, uh, yeah, and, um, so I had to suffer that. Um, eventually when I was like 13, um, I was raped by him. Um, you know, and I remember, um, cause I can remember it as if it was yesterday, but like, um, and thankfully I've been hit, I've kind of had help to get over all these things, but, um, when it happened, I had to um, leave his house and go back through the community. I I didn't try to plan my route. I didn't care if I met gangs, if I was racially abused. Um, I was so hurt that I had been kind of invaded. My body had been invaded in that way. I was in, it was, it caused me a lot of pain. Um, I had this constant feeling of, of, of this penis up my backside. Um, for the longest period of time, I went home. I ran a bath. I, I ran several baths and my dad wanted to beat me for doing that because he says, because we had a like, um, an electric meter, you put 50p in and he said, and, and, um, I'd used off all the hot water. And so, um, but, um, and, and they weren't parents that I could just tell, I told, tried to tell my sisters what happened, but they didn't believe me. They, they didn't believe that that would happen. And children weren't very easily believed back then, but, um, so I, I clammed up, you know, I tried to tell my best friend and because we laughed at everything, he, that was his first reaction. But, you know, um, so for many years I had this and I, I, it affected me. I couldn't have people be, um, close with me, you know, and put their arms on me and things. I remember, um, engaging with girls um you, you know in play and um if there was any close contact i i froze and backed off um you, you know so it really affected my relationships um and um i saw other guys other children um playing and pretending to do things to each other and i, I would tell them don't be doing that to me you know and um, I carried that through even it, whilst I was in prison, you know, um, uh, and, <laughs> but, but we could come to that, but it had a really, um, strong impact. It wasn't just that, that those abuses, I got abused by school dentists. Um, 
school, school dentist. I, I had a terrible fear of dentists. Um, school dentists were racist, the ones that I had. And so they would come and give you an examination, decide to do a filling, and they, they weren't very professional and, you know, that they were dealing with children and they caused a lot of pain, which made me not be able to keep still and stuff. So they ended up trying to pin me down, kneel on my chest, and I'm in the chair in agony um, and fighting them off. And they obviously not completing the work. It caused me untold problems with teeth. Um, I had to have hospital treatment in my later years because of it. Um, in, in one sitting with another dentist that was professional, he had to put me to sleep to do 14 fillings. Um, and um, I ended up having a cyst that, uh, in the roof of my mouth that was collecting fluid um, and they had to remove that. Um, I had a lot of problems. I mean, I haven't got all my own teeth now. I think I've got about 14, 13 or 14 of my own teeth, <laughs> um, you know, because of so much damage. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random 
IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn dot com slash heretics to learn more. This is atrocious. This is just the most, you know, it's a, it's a horrific upbringing. And, and, and then, you know, things go from bad to worse. You're, I gather you were groomed to be a pimp in a, in a gang. How did that happen? Well, um, you, you know, through getting into a lot of fights, through... Um, I made friends in in my community eventually um through stealing i i stole from shops um remember having this um brown um anorak coat and um it had holes in the pockets but i by default i was able to put my hands through the pockets make the holes bigger and i could pick up an item um, whilst my hands were in the pocket and then pull it back through my coat. Um, eventually I got good at stealing, but, um, I found that my friends and their parents, they wanted specific items. It, it got from small items to like hairdryer and various things like that. And I started stealing to order. Um, and they made sure their children didn't kind of abuse me or hurt me if I got them the things from the shops. So, <laughs> um, it kind of, um, eased the problem a bit for me. Um, but, uh, you, you know, so I stole for people's parents and, um, yeah. So, um, I ended up stealing from school one day and, and, um, the teacher made an example of me and everyone called me Stealer. So I was called not just at school Stealer, but in the community. Oh, look, there's Stealer, you know, and um, so <laughs> I didn't do myself any favours. <laughs> it went from bad to worse. But um, I got into trouble. I um, By the time I was 11, I'd been to court five times. Um, I, I got put into care um and um taken away from my parents and um they kept i kept um they kept sending me home at weekends um to try and you know help the relationship at home but it never worked so i'd run away um the same day i got there i would run away and in the end they sent me to an approved school in hampshire um and um it was like a big pupil referral unit but residential for kids all over the UK but even as far as Jersey we had um, kids and um, whilst I was there it was like St Trinian's for boys um, whilst I was there um, you used to if you behaved yourself you could earn a privilege uh, uh, once a month and you would get given like 50p and you could go to Southampton. They put you in the, in, in the school bus and they take you to Southampton and you can spend your 50p 
there. You can have like the day at Southampton. And um, I, when I went to this school, I got in with some other black kids and one of them was from Southampton, a Jamaican guy, um, slightly older than me. And he introduced me to his gang and he was part of a gang in Southampton and they had prostitutes. Um, and so they started to groom me to be um, in this gang as a pimp. Um, but I struggled with that because I saw how they treated the young girls and, and the women. And I thought, I've got seven sisters. I couldn't imagine myself doing that to them. And so um, eventually I, um, I didn't um, join that gang. I, I couldn't see myself on a regular basis beating up women for their money um, and sending them back on the streets to, you know, sell their bodies. Did you did you ever do that? Did you ever sort of feel pushed into doing that even the first couple of times? Well, no, they were in the grooming process. They were being nice and trying to introduce me to it slowly, um, you, you know, and then obviously the time came where I needed to make a decision, you, you know, um, whereas today, that kind of thing, they would have trapped me. They would have um, got me in some sort of debt and say, well, you owe us now. You've got to do this and you've got to do that. Um, so I, I was a bit luckier at that age that um, they didn't get me in that kind of debt and try and make me, you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, but I was um, at that age, I was... Uh, learning to fight a bit more I did boxing training and uh, you know um, I had tried you know taekwondo but I wasn't um, I was I didn't get anywhere with it um, but boxing um, kind of helped but at the school when it was the headmaster's birthday he made they set up a boxing ring and he made you pair up with people and the staff would sit round the edges and you'd have to entertain the staff for the headmaster and beat the head out of each other. And also, if you got into any grievance with any um, other children in the school, they set up the boxing ring and you, you know, you, you beat each other up and, and that settled it and you shook hands after. What what led you on to sort of, you got into armed armed robbery, armed rob where do you even get a gun and, and where do you even think to, do armed and where, and where were you robbing well in later life i was um so, so now you, you know in later life um after some more rejections from other places um like the armed forces um i was headhunted by a local drug dealing gang um because they're guys um um, they got into some serious trouble and broke arms and legs. They went into a big townhouse um, where there was a drug dealer with lots of drugs and money. And um, these four guys, they thought they could go up and rob him um, because the gang was trying to control the whole area. And um, so they thought they could. So they took imitation firearms to rob this drug dealer 
in this big townhouse. And he must have realized that they had imitation fight, but he pulled out a real gun. And they all kind of shit themselves and jumped out the top window of a townhouse. So that's like three stories high, broke arms and legs. So um, without having to do any initiation, I already had a reputation for fighting um, because some of my abusers and attackers that um, abused me in school and bullied me when I, uh, when, when I got bigger, I went looking for them and beat the crap out of some of the ones that I found, you know. So I got a reputation for fighting um, and most of the fights were fist fights. It was, there came a particular time when someone was saying, people don't fight with their hands anymore, they next they use knives. And I started to pick up a knife, but I was headhunted by this drug dealing gang and they recruited me as an enforcer. Um, and they said, well, you know, other drug dealers come and they get drugs from us on credit. And if they don't pay on time, we want you to get the money back or if they don't pay at all. And, and then, so I used to do that. Plus, plus they sent me on suicide missions, um, where they'd give me, um, a few grand and send me to Brixton. Um, and places like that. And there'd be gangs waiting outside to rob people who have gone inside this place to buy drugs. I went in to buy drugs. Um, I came out, um, wasn't touched by any of the gangs, but I would go prepared. You know, I was tooled up. Um, and, um, so I was able to go and, um, conduct those types of businesses and bring back the money. I always got the money back from other drug dealers. Um, and then I was headhunted by an organized crime gang member. We used to go to a particular pub, which they called the Labour Exchange. And uh, um, they called it that because criminals would come out of prison or from various places. And you could always get a job um, doing armed robbery or burglary. And so that it was called the Labour Exchange. And there was this guy who was part of an organised crime gang in London. And he introduced me to, which opened, which was like completely levels, so many levels higher than where I was, um, to, to bankers and business people. I had to wear suits. Um, and um, in the gang, because I had a mentor who owned a jewellery shop, lived at the back of Oxford Street, was chauffeur driven. And he said, right, we, we've got police, we've got East End gangsters, we've got MPs, um, all sorts of businessmen. You know, um, the bankers did a lot of fraud. Um, and I used to meet every week in London, in Marleybone, at a nice posh pub um, and um, we would have meetings and um, they were so well connected um, you know one of the 
um, robberies I did was because they had someone who worked in a bank and he would say to the um, a certain gang member that, right, we've got this person coming from this business on this day at this time, bringing X amount of money. Inside man. Yes. Yeah, so a lot of the crimes that I did for the organized crime gang was inside information. Um, and you cut, there's no, there's no stopping that. You, you know, you, <laughs> it, it's ridiculous. Take me through a typical one. So you sort of popping a mask on your face, go, I'm imagining like a movie scene, you know, guns blaring and all that, or how is it? No, I didn't. Um, depending on what we would do is watch the person and find a blind spot and then relieve them of the money. So um, broad daylight, um, it became... Um, it became too noticeable if you was to stand somewhere and you're wearing a mask <laughs> and you're looking very suspicious, <laughs> right? So the thing to do was to um, sometimes like let your facial hair grow um, and wear a hat, um, you know, some glasses that, um, you, you know, so, uh, and you, you're standing there, um, you know, as if you're doing something, you might be on the phone and um, said people would come along and then you would attack them and take the money. You know, you'd make sure that, you know, they let go of what they had, you know. So, and, and what happened was my mentor and a couple of other people from the gang, they gave me, these types of jobs to do and they watched from um, a place of safety and obscurity um, and they watched me perform these jobs and they were so impressed that um, it brought me into the gang even more and I got even more responsibilities and things and I, I met um, people a person I went to Paddington station Paddington train station and met a man who was telling me that this is one of the biggest drugs operation in the country. Um, and he said, look around. Um, you wouldn't know that that person in left luggage, those, um, some of those people in the offices, um, some of the people who, who work the platform are part of this drugs ring. And they had walkie-talkies and they knew when the police were there and they um, did a whole drug business um, from Paddington Station. Um, it, it, it was just an eye-opener for someone who was just a, um, an enforcer <laughs> for another gang. Were you, were you getting paid well at the time? Yeah, I, got, I, I was able to keep most of what I um, robbed um, I had to give a, a small percentage even like the man in the bank who gave out that information his cut was only 500 pounds um, because he's he said I can't um, have too much because it will it will become noticeable so every so from each um, information he gave he he made 500 quid 
the organized crime gang took a small percentage sometimes they didn't always you know but my my procedure was after such a crime um i went where black people was so i'd go to brixton i'd book into um a cheap b&b um i'd have a shave I'd, i'd go to the shop I love that shirt. I love it in them colours. I love them trousers. I love that. Um, you, you know, and, and so rather than go into a posh hotel, so I, I, um, go to the barbers, get a trim. Um, and I saw my photo fit in, in, in several papers. And, um, one time I got pulled by the police and, um, they put me on an ID parade. And uh, um, when you're on an ID parade, you're allowed to choose the from a lineup the people that you feel look like you to stand there with you. So I got the newspaper from my solicitor, and I decided to pick people that looked like the photo fit. <laughs> and I sat, I stood, and sat in between um, other guys who looked like the photo fit and I was never chosen. Wow. But eventually you were, you were, you know, you went to prison, didn't you? So you got caught for something. Oh yeah. I stabbed a lot of people. (laughs) Um, Oh yeah. (laughs) What were you stabbing people for? Was that part of the enforcing job? Sometimes. Or um, I'd get, I had such a reputation. I'd get, um, you you know, single parent families um, come to me and tell me, oh, you know, they, um, because like when they put the kids to bed, some of them like to have a spliff, have a bath, have a spliff. Um, and so they buy drugs from one of the local dealers and they were telling me they were getting ripped off and they ain't got much money and they wanted my help. So I, um, went to this particular person and I told him I was going to turn him into a tea bag and perforated him. And I put a lot of holes in him, took his money, took his drugs, gave, um, dished out, you, you know, some of the drugs to, and, and money to the aggrieved people and kept the rest. But I had a, I had a house, um, a safe house I could go to. Um, I walk in there and I sit down. Um, drinks are brought to me like cups of tea. Um, they take my clothes, they wash them or get rid of them. They give me other clothes. And this was a regular procedure. Did you, were you intending to kill that guy? Um, or, or just sort of a warning with the stabbing? No, I, I didn't intend to kill him. I mean, a lot of the ones I stabbed, I didn't intend to kill him. Um, sometimes by accident. Um, they received a lot more serious injury than I planned. Like one guy who um, owed me money and we were going to do a big armed robbery and he kept he kept not being there when we needed him. So I went to visit him at his place. But at the time I had a, a small Rambo knife, which was um, a pilot survival knife that I got from the army surplus. And... Um, uh, I had it in my pocket, took a taxi to his place, went to see him, had a chat with him, and we ended up in an argument. And I left. I said, well, me and you, we're not doing any more business. So we finished sort of thing. 
And as I was walking away from him, he was still giving me a lot of verbal abuse. I turned around to him, showed him a bit of my blade. I said, listen, you need to back away. I don't want no trouble. And he wouldn't. So I pulled it out. I thought I'd just slice him across his face. But the knife went up through his mouth, went into his mouth. From his chin. It went, it went through the tonsils. It nearly, oh. if I'd have pushed, if because it was a heavy knife, if I'd have had a little more force behind it, it would have come out the other side of his head. That's how, you, you know. And he was, he couldn't talk. Uh, he was in hospital, and the only reason why he grasped me up was because the police led him to believe that he'd get compensation, but he didn't realise at the time that um, if you've got a criminal if you've got a criminal conviction and uh, you, you weren't going to get that compensation and he came to court um and you know he was very stroppy and had a very rude attitude and it didn't go down well with the with the um court the the, the prosecution and that and um and the jury didn't like him so I got found not guilty. I, I didn't deny stab. I said I did. I said I lied. I mean, I said he had a gun, I had a knife, and we had a fight. And you know, we were struggling with the knife, and he got stabbed in the mouth. When so you wanted to slash his slash his face a bit as a bit of a warning, but you've accidentally gone sort of through his tonsils and into his mouth and that. Were you then like, oh shit, sorry mate, oh I've gone too far, or is it just like this whole ang- Is it too quick for that? Well, the newspaper said that this guy, because I had a taxi waiting, I just walked away uh, calmly and got into the taxi. Uh, I did say to the taxi driver, because he was watching it all, I said, are we cool? And he said, yeah, we're cool. Uh, So so, (laughs) um, he took me to where I wanted to go. He never grasped me up, Um, but the paper, um, somehow some news got into it, but he, um, if, if it came from him, he never mentioned me. Um, and they, it said in the Oxford Mail that, um, this guy, um, did this, stabbed this person and then calmly walked away and got into a taxi. That sounds like what happened then. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, equally so, um, a, um, a guy, I, I broke a, a knife off in his face. Um, you, you know, he, um, he, he got me in trouble. He got me locked up. Um, he, he, um, I was breaking up a fight between him and, uh, um, he's black and the, my other friend is white, but I knew the black guy and I was breaking up the fight. There was a fight between these two. And so I was trying to stop him from beating up my white friend. And, um, so I got between them and broke it up. Um, you know, he still, they both still tried to have a go. My white friend was losing. So I grabbed hold of the black guy and give him a judo throw on the floor. And I had a little knife on me, not this pilot survival knife. And I, it dropped out of my pocket. I picked it up so that he couldn't pick it up and cause any harm, but it kind of scratched his arm as I did it. Put, you know, picked it up and picked him up at the same time. And um, 
he was angry with me. He said, you're supposed to be on my side. You know, we're supposed to stick together. And I said, no, that's my friend, you know. And so he hated me because I stuck up for my white friend and didn't side with him. So in the magistrate's court, they were told that I repeatedly stabbed him, you know. And so I got remanded in custody. And um, when I got out, um, on back, I saw him and I made him come round the back of these colleges and I knocked him to the, well, I went to punch him in the face with a knife in my hand. It went through his, um, his jaw, it, the side of his jaw and the knife snapped. I had part of the, I had the handle and part of the knife in my hand and I, give him a judo throw again to the floor and was bouncing his head off the concrete, you know, and, um, you, you know, while he was pleading for his life. But because um, for, for, whilst I was on remand, my father died in the Caribbean and I couldn't get to see him or anything. So I was proper angry, you, you know. But equally, he was he was the same guy who after that incident, sometime after that incident, I saw him again across the road and he was like being rude to me, making gestures. And then when I see him again, was in a Caribbean nightclub. It was, it was a dance and he was the one. Uh, I had a, this time I had a Japanese lock knife and I had got him, so people around, Reggae music's playing. I think it was Bob Marley. Uh, I got him. I was so angry with him. And he was on his knees. And I had a Japanese lock knife about to pierce his skull with it. So he would have died. No two ways about it. And whilst I had him like that, he started saying the Lord's Prayer. No word of a lie. And it freaked me out. I mean, who does that? <laughs> so he started saying the Lord's Prayer as I held him there. There was people who were seeing what were happening and running out. And some people who didn't see, they were carrying on dancing. Prayer, the prayer sort of stopped you, did it? Well, there was evil going on inside of me, all right? And the very mention of the word God, it just made whatever rage and evil that was inside of me, um, it made that force kind of say, is that the time we need to be going? And it just left me and I, I, I was frozen. I, I didn't know what to do. I, I, and I lost my rage. I lost my anger in that moment. Um, and the only thing I got to do in the end, eventually, was tell him, you, you know, I better not see you again. Um, you know, I, I went downstairs and built a spliff and had a rum. Um, I, I just couldn't believe what had happened, I was prepared to go to prison. Um, I was committing a murder in front of people. Um, 
guaranteed prison, even if I went on the run. I was prepared for it. Um, I was so angry. This man um, robbed me of some time to pay my respects to my father and, and that because we had reconciled. Me and my dad, he used to beat me really bad, but we had reconciled um, and I was angry. I, I was in kill mode. It sounds like, but you know what's, it's so hard because I hear hearing all these stories of the stabbing and beating people up and all this stuff, and yet you're such a mild mannered, softly spoken gent that it's very like help me reconcile those two things. I've had all sorts of therapeutic help and um, it, and specialist help to be able to. It's almost as if someone has gone back to that small child right back as far as that and has made them feel that it's okay and 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 made them not take on those um anger and rage issues and even after the rape and everything and the kind of help i've had has brought that kind of healing for want of a better term to me um, but it was quite common for psycho criminals um, to be calm at times and give people a false sense of security. But then when you messed with them, um, that, you know, so, they, um, but that doesn't kind of say who I am today. I think the healing the letting go i've had to let go of my anger towards my parents i've had to if i didn't i i came to a point where i realized with the help that i got that if i didn't find a way to let it all go let go of what my abuser did let go of all that it was going to destroy me and i was going to help it destroy me as well through my actions it's been a remarkable turnaround really uh, in your life and that you help others now uh, but there was more trauma to come i believe just reading on your website that um your your son is in prison for murder now is that is that right yeah i was married to his mum and um we divorced um she went to live in america um we were going to go together as a family, but um, I, I would have had to wait a year to be able to get um, legal alien residence anyway. But it didn't work out, and she didn't want to take him. I think part of the deal with her parents was to leave him, be, my our son, behind. And um, at the time when that happened... We had just had an argument. I went back to Oxford. This happened in London, southeast London. I went back to Oxford. Um, when I got myself together again, I found out that um, my son was still in England. And I um, went about legally to try and get him back, managed to get him back. Um, and somewhere along the line, my wife and I got talking we decided to share him um, and he was about 15 months at this time. So 
I let her have him and I was supposed to have him back after the holidays, summer holidays, but I never got him back. Um, <clears throat> so I never saw him for 22 years and nine months. Uh, um, he got deported to England from America because he'd done time in America, got involved with gangs and drugs. And because he was only an alien resident, they said, well, if you're not going to try and lead a normal life, we'll deport you. So they deported him to England through the missing, through the um, prisoners abroad um, kind of organization who then put him and others in a crack house in Woolwich. What? Um, the missing people, because I was writing letters to him all the time, but he wasn't getting them. Um, but they got hold of some of my letters and um, they gave him my letters and um, got us to meet. And when I met him and everything, I got him out of the crack house, got him in a place got and stuff like that. But he went, got him a job um, and he had an argument at work with the staff and then he went outside and had a spliff. And when he come back in, they said, we don't need you. And he couldn't pay his rent. He was too embarrassed to tell me and everything. And cut a long story short, he ended up in London selling drugs with a drug dealer who was transferred to the UK in the same way he was. And an 18 year old boy stole 10 pounds worth of crack cocaine um, from him. And the drug dealer said to my son, are you going to let everyone steal my drugs? And the pair of them got this young lad. My son stabbed him nine times and the drug dealer was beating him with a stick. This young lad was in a crack house bando um, place and they got to the they managed to get from the basement to the ground floor and he collapsed between two parked cars and died so my son's doing 22 years for murder he's got about eight years left how did it feel when you found out about that well i was really shocked and hurt that um, not only had this young lad lost his life, um, I'd lost my son too. But I had tried to stop my son because he started to get involved in gang activity before this happened. And he he went for a period of time where he thought, you know, he's going to kill someone. I, I grasped him up to the police. It was very hard to tell the police that my son... Um, he's a risk he's going to kill someone and um so i did that and um they didn't do anything um and he um ended up with that gang and he um stabbed that guy i went to his court case and um i saw the family and they were broken and and screaming and crying because there was no chance their son could change his life anymore. His life was gone. And they wished my son to spend his time in hell. But I said to my son, 
I tried to get him to go guilty to the crime because I said, the evidence is all there. I said, if you do, you'll get 15 years. He says, now I can beat it. And um, I said, well, if you get found guilty, you'll get more. And he got found guilty very quickly. And the, the judge told him, if you'd have gone guilty, I would have only given you 15 years. And so now he's got to do 22. But I said to him, every time you have a tough day in prison, remember you're still breathing. I said, that family has lost their son for good. You've still got a life, whether it be in prison or, um, you, you know, you, you're still alive. And it was very hard to try and have a relationship with him. And I mean, he's made massive changes now. He wants to do good, but, you know, um, that family is going through kind of like hell every day with the loss of their son. So there's just no comparison, you know, um, it's, it's so hard. Tell me about the work that, that you do now. Well, um, I was first introduced to this work um, a short time after coming out of prison and asked to talk to a South East London gang about prison. And I looked at their faces and they just, even though they were older than they looked, they just looked like little kids. And they were drug dealing, using knives, guns at times. They were doing a lot of robberies. Um, and after talking to them for two hours and they were really quiet, they, um, the gang started to disperse. People wanted to leave the gang. Girls confessing to the youth workers who got me to talk to the gang that they'd been sexually abused and raped in the gang. Um, all this stuff started to come out. One of the gang members decided to run away because he couldn't, he wouldn't be allowed to leave the gang. He ran to Manchester. I saw him like three years later um, in in Dartford and he said he went to college up there, you know, and he, he was there with his new girlfriend doing really well. Um, so it had a massive impact and, you know, um, the charity I run was started through that. So now I, I go into schools, I do a lot of child criminal exploitation sessions teaching about how easy it is to get trapped into a gang. I rescue a lot of children from gangs. There's been some horrific stories. We've been going nearly 18 years. Um, I do a lot of coaching and mentoring. Um, I've had to, um, you know, get a better education to be able to um, be qualified to teach um, what I do. Um, and to be able to use my lived experiences um, in a professional way. Um, so um, I've been doing that for such a long time. Um, uh, yeah, I work in the community. I work in, I've worked in a children's prison. Um, I still work in the prisons now. Um, I'm just going to be allowed to take children into prison again, like I used to years ago, to show them what prison is like if they... Um, make wrong choices and end up there as part of one of my programs. Um, and, um, yeah, so that's some of it. Uh, early intervention and crime prevention 
um, is what we try to do. We try to change people's thinking so they change their behaviour, their self. And where can people go and find that? Be on like, the Refocus website if they want to find out more about your work. Yeah, they can find out um, from our website, um, www.refocusproject.org.uk. Um, uh, <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, you can find out more. There's referral forms on there if that people wanted to um, refer a young person that needed help. Um you know, there's um, donation page and things. We raise our own funds to do what we do, um, uh, which has been very difficult because, uh, you know, sometimes when you get commissioned to do some work, you, you've got to work within a particular framework where I can work with young people, whether they're under the influence of drugs or alcohol, I can, I'm not restricted and you, you know having come from that background i know how to approach them i know how to help them in those kinds of states as well but i i do i um i'm training up other young people to carry the baton and take over what i do uh, it's amazing work lennox i really really love what you're doing and how you've turned your life around and uh thank you so much for being on the edge yeah well you know thanks for having me on and um you know, I started this because I wanted to say sorry for my life and my wrong choices. And I thought, saying sorry, you can't really. But if you help change others going down that route, that people might accept that in some way as a, a kind of sorry. Thank you so, so much for coming on and telling your story, Lennox Rogers. You told it with such honesty and integrity as well. Lennox's story is something we could all learn from. It's one of redemption. And he's now giving the help to kids that he so sorely needed once upon a time. I wish him only the best now. Thank you all for listening. And if you enjoyed what Lennox had to say, get hold of his book, Breaking Better. A link is in the show notes. And check out his Refocus project to learn more. Please support this podcast on patreon.com slash Gold. Thank you to all the new subscribers. You get added free episodes there and you know i'm supposed to do bonus uh, bits and i do and i try to but I, I haven't been doing them as much as i used to uh but i will get going on those or figure out a new kind of bonus to offer my patrons uh but it's all love it's lovely chatting to you all on there as well the top tier patrons the ones who pay it's like 20 quid a month that one i mean it's only three quid to get the ad free episodes but 20 quid uh a month it's a top tier and i have chats with people it's like a group video call of like five or six of us which is good fun and keep on reviewing the podcast it's a huge help here are a couple of new ones um and there are more i'm saving for the next time as well it does make a huge difference to the kinds of guests i can attract to the podcast so that they can guess how big the podcast is based on the number of reviews and in america on the edge is falling quite far behind it's annoying that it doesn't show all the reviews worldwide but just shows you whatever country you're in uh, because the reviews in the uk are growing nicely over 300 but in the uk it's just um, sorry in the us it's only around 100 but here here's one from down under australia and it's written by sarah j oz 
a big fan, she says. Five stars she's given. I love how after each episode you make me think differently about certain issues or consider other perspectives that I never would have thought of. Brilliant range of interviews and amazed at how well you navigate such contentious issues. Really important work and very grateful. Sarah Brackets, a fellow Brit. So she's in Australia, but she's not even Australian. But thank you so much, Sarah. That was lovely to read. Um, And I got one from Eastbourne Steve in the UK. Five stars. Andrew is a good interviewer. He's not afraid of discussing taboo subjects. And finally, Scott Baldwin. I don't know where he is because he's on, Car- on Castbox, the platform. There's a little sort of smaller platform than Apple where you can leave reviews. The problem is it never tells me what the episode was that they review. They review, they review a specific episode. And Scott wrote, this was an incredibly enlightening podcast. Thank you for being brave enough to bring this viewpoint to light. So we can speculate on which episode Scott Baldwin's talking about. If you've got any ideas, if you want to guess, send me a message on Twitter or Instagram, AndrewGold underscore OK. Uh, I think you can find Lennox Rogers is on Twitter as well. So go find him there as well. Um, and guess, yeah, what do you think Scott Baldwin was talking about? Send me a little message. Maybe Scott will get in touch because I'd love to love to know what it was. Um, that's all for now. I'll see you next time. Life's better with American Family Insurance. Because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.